Um, I wasn't here on Easter Day, which I think is the first time I've not been around on Easter Day for a long time. I was in uh, Gloucester because the pastor of Gloucester Community Church died suddenly on Easter Saturday. Uh, And it's important to be with family. And for them, these days, I represent something of the wider family of uh, of God to them, the church family that they're part of. And it was important to be with them. And not to say much. but just to be with them on that morning. We had a precious morning together. Um, Who knows that when you're bereaved, you just need people to stand with you and be in the room. Um, That's where I was three Sundays ago. The last couple of Sundays, I've been in Africa. Um, My first time in East Africa. I've been to other bits of Africa. And uh, here we go. Last week, last Sunday, pretty sure this will work. Uh, that's where I was last Sunday. That's um, James Melissa in front of his church. Who was around when about, before I went, we took an offering one Sunday morning, some of which was to go to Rwanda. Um, I went into uh, East Africa. I wasn't alone. There were a few others that were doing the trip with large wads of American dollars uh, because it wasn't only our generosity, but other churches in our sphere, in our family around here had also I'd given money, and I took about $9,000 over, which um, was enough to see the necessary work done on a number of their churches. The government has brought in some regulations increasing the building standards that are demanded of church buildings, which has had the effect that 6,500 churches in the country have been closed with kind of no notice. It's quite a big challenge for them. Uh, in addition to that... Um, The government has changed the rules saying that buildings cannot be used for any other purpose than that for which they were constructed, which means that all school halls are now, uh, and hotel conference centers and all the rest of it, can no longer be used for church congregations to meet in. Um, Six and a half thousand churches have ceased to meet almost overnight in the country. Uh, The money that I was able to take over a good chunk of which came from the generosity of this church, alleviated that for some churches in different parts of the country. And that's James, through whom we were able to to channel that money. And this church building here um, needed upgrading to be soundproofed. And whilst I was there, they were doing some of that work. Um, This particular church is called Revival Palace. And uh, that's a good name. They have a big vision. About 200 yards away from this place is a school called the Fruits of Hope Academy, which was directly inspired by the King's School in Whitney, which is part of our ministry as a group of churches. Uh, There was someone there, a guy called Fred. I don't know if that was his Kinyarwandan name, or I suspect not, but he introduced himself to me as Fred, uh, uh, who had a vision to see the ethnic divisions that led to the genocide 24 years ago overcome. Thought kids need to hear the gospel of reconciliation in order for that to happen. And his initial idea was that he'd somehow managed to get young people to sit down and get a stream of pastors to come through and preach the gospel to them. And that would change them. And actually, it's through his interaction with David Freeman, who was a founding principal at the King's School in Whitney, that he realized it might just be possible... In fact, it might well be a God-given dream not to do it that way, but to open a school. They've now got 450 children in their school. It's growing up towards 
800, and they are standing alongside 10 other groups in the country that are currently in the process of opening schools with the same kind of vision. So good people. Um, I thought you might like to see a video of their, their worship, and I, um, just it's help. This is, this is where I was last Sunday. Uh... Right, there you go. Uh, now... The, the thing I wanted to say was that after this worship, um, James said to me, I'm so sorry. He said, I'm so sorry that it was so dull. <laughs> so do you need to understand that following the genocide in Rwanda, there is, look, we have Remembrance Day in November to remember the tragedy of war. Uh, that's our habit in the UK. In Rwanda, they have a three-month period every year to remember the genocide. There's a three-month period of mourning every year. Um, whilst I was there, there was one young man who had a relative die. And I thought, well, that's clearly sad. And then I discovered that uh, this man and his female relative were the only two people left out of a family of 35, because the other 33 had been killed in the genocide. And his last remaining family member had died. And they have a three-month period of mourning every year to remember, to unite, and to seek to renew the nation. And um, James said, we're in that period of mourning now, so we've restrained our worship out of um, respect for those who are currently remembering their bereavement. Um, I said, it's okay. I said... um, Uh, I'm not, I said, I'm not, I'm not feeling that it's very dull. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Um, whilst I was in Rwanda, I was actually there to visit a family. Someone said they're doing really, really well. I met with a group of Rwandan pastors, with, prayed with them on Tuesday, and they said, we're just so grateful that you've sent this family. It's amazing how quickly they've connected with our culture. We have gone to seek to mobilize churches there to send people to unreached nations in the north of Africa. They've already connected with a group of students that are planning to head. So I want to say, it's good, and they're doing well. Okay, that's where I've been, and uh, this is what we're doing. This is what's been going on here uh, the last few weeks. I know this because I've listened to all the talks, so I know what's been going on. Uh, two weeks ago, this series on uh, being God's kingdom people began with grace speaking about creation and um, she said how God made everything how God cares for everything reigns over everything and that means we can have hope we can find our satisfaction in him she said more than that but those are some of the headlines Uh, last week Lois spoke about covenant a meaty theological theme uh, handled very well and uh, focusing on the amazing deal that God offers to people of being in a committed relationship with him, that that's possible. To be in a committed relationship with God in which we know him and we're we're fully known. So this week, um, there'll be a little bit of touching on covenants again, but with a focus on their community aspect. That it's not just that God makes a covenant with me, but God makes a covenant with us 
his people. So I'd like to do a little run through of what community is like in the Old Testament and then draw out a few practical things from that. Now, uh, the word that's used again and again in the Old Testament is not so much the word community, which is a rather later word in human history, it's more Greek in its origin, but the word family. God's people in the Old Testament, again and again, we see are a family. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. That's an Ethiopian depiction of Adam and Eve. Stick with the African theme for as long as we can. Uh, In the beginning, God created not just an individual, started with Adam, but swiftly moved on to create the creation of a family. His creation of humanity was not complete until he created the minimum size unit for humanity to live within. Two people, a man and a woman. God created family. That's how he made people to be. That family soon grew in number and became a family of four. Each one of them, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, each one bearing the image and the likeness of God. And together, not just as individuals, but together inheriting that mandate described in Genesis 1 to rule the earth on God's part. God entrusted his rule on earth, that is his kingdom on earth, not simply to a man or a woman or even to a couple, but to a family of which he himself was the head. Now, who here knows that family life can be difficult? Does anybody know that? You may have experienced that. There's two brothers over there already poking each other. Uh, So it was for this first family. It's not long before we read in Genesis a story of, of Cain and Abel, of Cain jealous, bitter, and murderous, killing his brother. Uh, In fact, the story of this family kept going ever more wrong until it says in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6 that God's pain at this family's utter dysfunction filled his heart. It's powerful words. I mean, God's got a big heart, right? Made all things, cares for all things. God's got a, a big heart. Genesis 6, verse 6 says, what was going on in this family? It filled his heart with pain. And it says that he regretted the whole thing. And it's that that brings in the story of the flood, of a judgment that seeks to cleanse the face of the earth of all of this wickedness, bringing a judgment upon the family of Adam. That's the story of the great flood. But what comes next? Well, here's Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives coming off the ark through which they were saved from that judgment. God starts again with a family. And he makes a covenant. He commits to relationship with his family once again. And then the next chapter in the great story of the people of God begins 
with Abraham. And here's one of the stories from the life of Abraham with his precious son, Isaac. The, the family, as they're introduced to us in the story, there's Abraham and there's Sarah and their nephew, Lot. And then there's Ishmael, a son that's born from a concubine. And then finally, Isaac. There's this family story that unfolds. This is the covenant promise recorded in Genesis chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, with more life experience than any of us, the Lord appeared to him. And he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between you and me and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abram fell face down. God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of nations. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant. And here we go. As an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. It's a promise of relationship, not just with one man. It's a promise of relationship with a family. Uh, that family later takes the name Israel. I'm going to need to blow my nose, and it may be very loud. <laughs> One of the things I brought back from, from Africa was an infection, which I will try to keep to myself. Um, this is a picture of... Jacob blessing his 12 sons, the heads of the tribes of Israel. We, when we use the word Israel, we probably think of the nation Israel. Israel is the name of a kingdom, the name of a nation. But actually, Israel is the name of a man. It's the name of this man. He was uh, named at birth Jacob. But after he'd wrestled with God, he was renamed Israel. And uh, this in Genesis 32 and verse 28, if you want to look it up. And so when promises are made to Israel, they're not just made to this man or somehow to some political entity, but they're made to a family. The promises are spoken to Jacob, who is called Israel, as a family man concerning his family, a family that once was small, but then numbered hundreds of thousands. And it keeps going in the same vein. This is meant to be a picture of David with his son Solomon. When God made a covenant with David, who was King David, it wasn't only a promise to David, but for his offspring who would follow. In 2 Samuel 7 and from verse 12, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And house here doesn't mean bricks and mortar. It means a dynasty, that kind of house. Generations that will follow. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood. I will establish his kingdom. My love will never be taken away from him. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, that's just a little potted summary of some highlights of how God chooses to work from what we read in the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes it abundantly clear that God's kingdom is worked out through a community of people called family. The family of Adam, the family of Noah, the family of Abraham, the family of Israel, the family of David. Now, it wasn't only uh, Adam's family, Adam's direct family, that had difficulty with this. There's some of the families that we've looked at. Uh, in Adam and Eve's family, Cain killed Abel. Uh, in Noah's family, Ham, not here the name of a cut of meat, but of Noah's second son, uh, was enslaved to his brothers because of his unrighteous behavior. So slavery comes in within a family. It's pretty tragic. Uh, in Abraham's family, there's strife with Lot, and indeed with Ishmael, the son born of a concubine, which had far-reaching consequences historically. Uh, in the family of Israel, uh, Israel, that is Jacob's brother Esau, was cheated out of his inheritance by Jacob, leading to a bitter family feud. And when we get to David's house, I mean, it's awful. There's murder, there's rape within the family. I said, who knows that family can be difficult? I don't know whether you've had murder or slavery or rape within your family. You may have done. I've spoken to people in this church in time gone by who have experienced some of those things within their family. Many more will have experienced strife and bitter feuds. I love the fact that the Bible is open about the challenges of family life. And at the same time, it makes it abundantly clear that God's kingdom is worked out through family. Even in the face of this difficulty, though family life is riddled with challenge, God never gives up on family. He has this sort of endless optimism and promise around making family life work. We can run out of hope for our relationships, but God never does. Why is it that God is so passionate about family? What is it about family that makes him so committed to it? Well, I could say lots of different things. Here's a few. I'm not going to speak about all of these, but only the last few in this list. Family encourages the downcast. It, it does. You know, sometimes when you're feeling down, just to have people with you that can speak an encouraging word, family does that. People that are not going to abandon you, but are going to stay with you. Family educates in obedience. Schools can educate in knowledge, but it's community, it's family where we learn obedience, where we learn not just what to think, but how to live as we see what it looks like. Uh, family endures through trials. Family escorts us through our grief, and we need that. That's why I was in Gloucester on Easter 
day. It matters that we're there with each other. There's two more things here. These are the two that I'm going to speak about. Family also exhibits God's nature. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in just a moment. And family embraces the outsider. And I want us to see how both of those things are part of the Old Testament story of God's people. So here's the first thing. Uh, Family exhibits God's nature. That is to say, family is a window on what God himself is like. Uh, Now, contrary to some popular writing, and in particular, contrary to the shack and other forms of heresy, (laughs) uh, God is not a family of three persons. God is not a community of three persons. Because he's more united than that. He is three in one, not three in the same room. Three persons who are one in substance. And we can't easily understand that, can we? How can it be that three is one and one is three? We are constrained by the New Testament to believe that because we know that Jesus, is the, Jesus and the Father are, are one in everything that matters, in substance, in quality, in characteristics, and Jesus and the Spirit are one, and the Father and the Spirit are one, so they're one and yet they're different. They're not entirely blended into each other, and we're constrained to this seemingly paradoxical thing that three is one, And one is three. It's hard for us to understand, but God in his grace created family to exhibit something of his nature. In Genesis uh, Genesis, uh, 2, where it describes the union of Adam and Eve, it says, you know, this is how it works. Uh, Man leaves his family and is united to his wife, and the two become to become one flesh. So it's a window for us of the divine maths of unity. Humanly, we can see in a marriage covenant, one plus one equaling one. Well, it doesn't make sense, but we can see it. Uh, the thing that makes this most obvious to us, I think, is what happens when you meet a married couple who've been married for 50 or 60 years. And uh, they may complete each other's sentences. Uh, They may be so well-worn in knowing how they annoy each other that they know how to avoid it most of the time, except when they really want to. But um, (laughs) they know each other. But here's the thing. So often, when you have a, a couple who've been married for that length of time, When the first one of them dies, I don't know if you've seen this, it's like the spirit goes out of the other. Have you seen that? You think, well, they're probably not long for this world because it's like their life has gone. Because the two became one over, over all of those decades. Something mystical and profound, and it just opens our eyes Through family relationships, something of the reality of who God is gets exhibited. 
Though the maths are even more amazing for him. One plus one plus another one still equals one God in three persons. Family. God cares about family. It's not an arbitrarily chosen thing, but this nature of family shows something of what he's like. It's not only in that way. I want to say there's something about equality of value. I need to explain this from the Old Testament. You see, in all of the nations around the family of Israel, the way it worked was that land could be bought and sold just like it can be in this country today. And if you did well in business, you could keep accumulating land and become a landlord and become lordly and reach an elevated place in society above others. And so society, over time, after Israel had conquered that land, could begin to, to stratify, to start to form a lower class and a middle class and an upper class of people who were understood to have different levels of value. Um, that's what the nations around were like. Let me be clear. I think I may have said that slightly confusedly. The nations around Israel were like that, as is common for humanity. That's how our nation too works. Not so in Israel. They had this amazing thing called Jubilee, which meant that the longest... You, you couldn't, but you couldn't actually buy someone else's land. You could rent it, like a leasehold, for a maximum of 50 years. Because every 50th year, everything went back to the people that it started with. And in that way, everybody was kept on an even playing field. And this was the will of God, that no one would rise up above other people and be seen to be more important or to have more value. And everyone's well-being would be safeguarded through a deep understanding of the equality of dignity and um, standing of people in the family. Does that make sense? Israel was the only nation that did this. This was a heavenly revelation that this was how they should live life. And they did. Uh, even when they asked for a king, says this is very important. It says in Deuteronomy 17 and verse 20, the king must not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. That there's no place for thinking that you're, you're more valuable than someone else. There's this radical and profound equality of value between different people. That exhibits the truth that Father and Son and Holy Spirit are all equal in value. None is exalted above the other. None is better than the other. They are perfectly equal in wisdom in power, and, uh, and in the love that they share. Here's a third thing. Now, those two things, I think, are probably quite sort of, um, it's like stroking the fur the right way, as far as Western culture goes. Um, the next one doesn't. Because there is also, in this Old Testament family, a hierarchy as a hierarchy of honor. That reference in Exodus 20 in verse 12 is to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. Honor 
your father and mother because they gave you life. Without your father and mother, whatever other things they have done, they gave you life, and without them, you would not exist. You owe your entire being to them. So honor them. This is profound stuff. Uh, It speaks to relationships between Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And it speaks to the relationship that we too have with God because Jesus came and described God in heaven as his Father. And Jesus honored the Father. He directed honor and glory towards his Father in heaven not seeking it for himself. He took the low place and he lifted the Father up. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, likewise, doesn't seek glory for himself, but consistently points people to Jesus, as Jesus points people towards the Father. And they are resolved for all eternity on a hierarchy of honor. It's part of who God is. It's it's more fundamental in its reality than the existence of the universe in which we live and move and have our being. It's how things have always been and will always be. And God wants family that exhibits his nature. I wonder if that challenges us. Um, there's another little aspect to this, which is even more countercultural, isn't there? 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And I just want to say on that point, I wonder what that looks like in your life. In your relationships, how, is, how are the relationships between, the, the, the close relationships between men and women in your life, how are they exhibiting this aspect of God's nature? God's passion for family is not arbitrarily chosen. It's about exhibiting his nature in the world. Let's just pause and pray for a moment. Father, thank you that you made us in your image, in your likeness. I just pray that your word would would do its work in us. Um, Help us to see what these things mean. They may seem quite abstract. And if we've not seen other human relationships in which they're worked out, it's hard for us to imagine. I pray that you'd lead us forward. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you guide us into all truth. And I pray that you would so change us in our relationships, in the church, in our families, that we would ever more exhibit your nature. That in looking at us, people would get a true picture of what you're like, not a corrupted one, not a half-hearted one, not a more Western than biblical one, but something true and something strong. Amen. Ha, that was a muted amen. Amen. I was still muted. (laughs) 
You know, there's a principle when reading the Bible. I'm off script now. Um, there's, a, there's a principle when we're reading the scriptures that as we read through, this is a practical thing, as we read through, um, loads of it makes sense to us. You go, oh, that's brilliant, that's brilliant. Oh, praise God, that's brilliant. And every now and again, it can be coming across a bit where we go, you what? Like, Really? Ah, that, that makes no sense. I wouldn't do it that way. That may, it may even seem at times to be repulsive to us. Such can be the strength of our feeling. I want to suggest to you, those are the bits of Scripture with the greatest power to change us. The bits that we already just go, ah, oh, that's brilliant, that's brilliant. We've already learned about those truths. That's why we accept them readily. We've already got them in us. It's precisely the points where we go, excuse me, where we need to slow down and digest and meditate and say, what could this mean? What would this look like? What is it that needs to change in me for this to start to make sense to me? And so we don't need to be at all bothered by the fact, I'm not bothered that there are muted amens, having read a passage of scripture that I know typically leaves many people going, you're what? But my hope is that we'll chew on it. So what does it mean? Until it becomes meaningful and we can read it with joy. Family exhibits God's nature. Family uh, embraces the outsider. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to think that the people of Israel were basically a mono-ethnic group that all descended from the 12 leaders of the tribes, and that was that, and everybody else was kept out. I don't know why I thought that, because the Old Testament's really clear. From the beginning of God's involvement with people and of the story of families, you find again and again and again, there are outsiders who have been brought right into the center of the story. With Abraham, there is his servant Eliezer of Damascus who he thinks at one point might inherit all that he has. He's that close to him. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, is a Midianite. That is of another nation. He's right at the heart of the nation of Israel and giving advice on how it should be governed. When the people of Israel uh, go into the promised land and conquer Jericho, there's Rahab, who is a prostitute who is welcomed into the family of Israel. The grandmother of King David himself, Ruth, is, a, is from the land of Moab. There's Naaman the Syrian. In David's day, the, one of the people that he has killed, in fact, but is Uriah the Hittite from another place, an outsider who's come right into the middle of the life of Israel such that he's working in the army. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, there's Ebed-Melech, uh, who... Um, is almost certainly a black African from somewhere down towards Ethiopia who's come a long way to be right at the heart of the people of Israel. There are the Ninevites to whom Jonah preached who come in their tens and hundreds of thousands to enter into relationship with God outside even of the physical space of Israel. Back in the founding story of the nation of Israel, which is the exodus from Egypt, it says in Exodus 12 and verses 37 and 38 that there were many Egyptians who came up out of Egypt with the Israelites. 
and were part of that body of men and women and children together with them who moved up to the promised land. In fact, this family of Israel was so, it was such a big part of their life of outsiders coming and joining in that they had worked out operating procedures for what it is that you do when an outsider joins the family of Israel. In Exodus 12, again, it says, A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. And that's an operating procedure indeed. (laughs) Then, it says, he may take part like one born in the land. It's properly included. There's a procedure to be properly included. Verse 49, the same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 says, God loves the foreigner residing among you. Uh, It's in a little flow of things that talks about God loving the widows and the orphans, and in the same kind of love that God has for Israelite widows and Israelite children, God has for the foreigner who's in the midst Deuteronomy 23 has a rule explaining how the grandchildren of Edomites and of Egyptians can have full membership in the family of Israel. And um, Deuteronomy 31, when Moses is gathering all of the people of Israel to give his final words to them, he says, assemble the people, men, women, and children, and the foreigners residing in your towns so that they can listen And learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully follow all the words of his law. There is an inclusion of the outsider that is part and parcel of the way that God wants family to be. Um, When Jesus came, he put this practice on steroids. He said that anyone who came to hear him was his mother and brother and sister. He underlined the fact that Gentiles could enter into the good of the covenants that God made with people. And we want our church family to have the same kind of embrace. It's a story I've told before. Um, Forgive me if you've heard me saying this. It was very significant for me. Um, Some years ago when we were, I think, just beginning on our journey of asking, how can a church community really include people from outside? I was leading a, uh, an evening to train leaders in the front room of our house. We're living in Florence Park. A few of you were there. And um, that house we had, the, f- the front door opened immediately into our only reception room. So we were sat there, and there was a knock at the door. And it was our neighbor, for whom I'd been praying that there would be some opportunity to have some kind of spiritual conversation with him. I'd recently invited him to go with me to the cinema to see a film about um, human rights in Zimbabwe because I knew he cared about Zimbabwe and he couldn't come. And I thought, well, there you are. He came and knocked on the door. And he surprised me by saying, you know, the thing about Zimbabwe is that it's in a real state because Robert Mugabe was um, taken away from the original African animistic worship by Catholicism and the real way forward is for a spiritual change to take place in the life of the nation. Which sounds like an answer to prayer. He's coming to have a spiritual conversation with me. And to my great shame, what I did was feel awkward because I had a room full of people waiting to do some kind of Christian evening together. 
And so I found myself trying to cut this conversation with my neighbor as short as possible and shut the door on him. And I now know that what I should have done was say, you want to talk about spiritual things? Brilliant. I've got a whole room of friends that love talking about spiritual things. Just come in, join us. I don't know how the evening's going to go, but we'll have a cup of tea and it'll all be fine. Because the kind of family, the kind of community that God wants is one that includes outsiders. Not that's so stuck in its ways and its routines and its expectations that there's no room for people. Demands a kind of flexibility from us. Um, That is why, as a church, for some years we haven't had a goal of simply running Bible study groups, but what we've called missional communities. We don't want to form the kind of community that that naturally has closed doors, that does things that only make sense to Christians. Now, in our missional communities, there will be times when we study the Bible together, because that's the kind of thing Christians do. There will be times when we talk about the kind of conversations that only Christians understand. But please, God, would they have that key character of a practical openness to embrace the outsider? If we cannot flex, if we cannot live life differently, either in our planned activities or in our spontaneous activities, um, then we will fail to exhibit the character and nature of God in the kind of community that we form. Because he, as Jesus showed us, loves to welcome in people who have not previously been included. Um, That's why, I think, is it um, this week or next week? It's next week that... um, the English language social Oxford is meeting again this afternoon. I understand that it happened a couple of weeks ago and there was an Italian who came and a Saudi. Who else was there? Um, just the sort of thing that Christians naturally do, socialize in a way that is open to other people to come in. Great, there was a Saudi who came. Praise God. Um, that's why we don't just gather students into church family to be kept safe from the world of university life, but want to connect students up to spiritual mums and dads to exhibit to you something of what God's like, to embrace you into family, that you might see more of who God is. Um, that's why the Lee's Community Church exists. To be a family on Blackbird and Greater Lees that people can come into who would not travel off those estates to connect with a family anywhere else. There's a need for family to be located where people are in order for that embrace, that inclusion into family to have a chance of working. It's great that the Lees Community Church are here with us Uh, again this morning. Next Sunday, uh, there's a lunch here. I don't know how well everyone, how aware everyone is, but the Lee's Church is in a process of considering the shape of its future. They've come um, here on Sundays for the last couple of months to uh, uh, six weeks or so to get a little bit of respite from all of the rigors of organizing a Sunday meeting to find space in which to hear God afresh. And next Sunday is the first of a little series of lunches that will take place here 
uh, where there will be conversation about, so, you know, what is God saying? How will we be the kind of family in the Lees that can include outsiders, that can welcome people into the family of God? And it's not a lunch just for people already part of the Lees Church, though definitely it is for the Lees Church. But if there's anyone else in Oxford Community Church, or you've just landed in the city and you're still trying to work out which church to be part of, or whatever it may be, it's an opportunity to meet with the Lees Church, to listen to their story, to eat together, which is always good, to pray together, and to just be part of the process of hearing what God's saying about the replanting of the Lees Community Church. So I just want to make that a really obviously open invitation to anyone and everyone who's at all interested to come and be part of that next Sunday here straight after the service. Family embraces the outsider. I just want to finish. I'm, um, I've, I've spoken for quite a while already, and I'm, I'm coming into land, but there's one more substantial point that I need to make. And it's to go back to the fact that family is often painful. What I'm wanting to say is I understand that who we are as people, the way in which we relate, is profoundly influenced by our family life. But there's a call up this morning to say even those things that you might think that's part of your personality, that's the way you were made, that's who you are, and it's not for changing. God wants to say no to those lies and to say he will call us up that our ways of relating would exhibit his nature in the world so that people would increasingly be able to see in us what he is really like, not some kind of half-hearted, bastardized version of God's nature, but something true. And God invites us this morning to embrace that change and to lay open who we are before him and to invite him to come by his spirit and to wash and to change and to heal and to shift things in us that we thought could never be changed. But actually, if we saw it clearly, they are chains that are binding us and they no longer need to do so. Now, I know I'm speaking to a whole room of people who in some way have some kind of personal reality personal experience that is an equivalent to the kind of thing that I've just described. You know, that's not the first time I've realized the need for change in my life arising from my upbringing. That's just one in the series of things, and the same will be true for you. There's an invitation this morning to, just to say, God, come and change me. Come and change me. May I no longer be defined by whatever was wrong in my family, but make me straight and make me true and make me like you. Amen.